you know, persuasion is about me trying to convince you that I'm right. Consciousness is about helping people to imagine a different world, to imagine a different kind of future, and then to ask, what must you believe because of that world that you're trying to create? You know, and so it's about kind of moving people to a different framework for understanding each other, their relationship to the political system, what they wanted for Minnesota, like all these different kind of things. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Hari Han, director of the SNF Agora Institute and professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. Hari is someone any listener to this podcast should be aware of. In 2018, she came on the show to talk about her career and her book about how organizations develop activists, which you should listen to. Since then, she moved schools, wrote a new book about power and organizing called Prisms of the People, and became director of an institute that works to strengthen global democracy through civic engagement and informed inclusive dialogue. So we had a lot to talk about. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Hari Han of SNF Agora Institute and the Johns Hopkins University. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Well, hi, Hari. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. When I have guests for a second time, I don't have to go through biographical stuff, and so I direct anyone who's interested to a different interview we did where Hari talks about her whole history and about a previous book, but wanted to welcome you back to talk about what you've been doing in your career since, I think it was about April of 2018 where we last talked. And you were at the time at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and I know you've moved on from that and have a new institute. And so just catch me up with what's happened in your life since we talked then. In 2018, I was on faculty at the University of California in Santa Barbara. I've since moved to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, um, which, as you know, with the great migration pattern from Santa Barbara, California to Baltimore, Maryland, I was <laughs> that, that trend. And um, a big reason why I moved was um, because Johns Hopkins was starting up a new institute called the SNF Agora Institute. And I had the opportunity to and the honor to join the SNF Agora Institute as its director. And we are an institute, an academic and a public forum dedicated to strengthening global democracy with a particular focus on the notion of the agora or the interstitial public spaces where people come together to engage in struggle and contestation, deliberation and debate as being fundamental to making democracy work. And so a lot of the work that we do is try to bring together a multidisciplinary group of scholars from political science, history, sociology, economics, philosophy, and so on, to think about what do we need to do to strengthen the global agora, essentially. And so we're trying to understand not only what the challenges of democracy are, what possible solutions are, but also how we might imagine the role that scholarship, academic scholarship, can play in trying to solve some of the most pressing problems that we face in our world. Yeah, I've talked to a fair number of scholars, academics over the course of the last almost five years who are really worried about our democracy and other democracies and just the trends. It's hard to know, I think, how to be most effectual from that role. I mean, there are so many giant forces that are awfully difficult, even if you were, say, president of the United States, to have much impact on. Um, and here you are studying it watching it very carefully from a place of limited power, but some connection to people who are working on power and working on what you can do. Why don't we delve into this book that even though it's 
I know you've moved on in your work a little bit, but you, this summer, a book came out about prisms of the people that's based on a metaphor involving a prism and how organizations sort of ref, reflect, refract the light or the power of individuals. I think in 2018, you actually mentioned that you were already working on case studies involving Isaiah and I guess some of the other organizations in the book. Tell me about what was the idea behind this and why did you get going on it? Yeah. Well, so I'd love to get back to that point that you were making before just about the challenge of doing work that feels meaningful um, in the context of the, you know, how fraught uh, our current political moment seems. Putting that aside for now, um, one aspect of that that we wanted to study when we were working on prisons um, really began with a trend that we were seeing uh, way before 2018. So this is a trend I think that had been emerging over the course of the 21st century that not only was emerging in some of the patterns that we were seeing in our own work, but that was evident from a lot of other people's research, which basically is this idea that there is what we call a broken link between participation and power. So we were in this moment, not only in the United States, but all over the world, where it felt like people were taking action in ways that we hadn't been able to imagine um, in years past. And part of that has to do with the digital revolution and politics, but, but many other trends as well. What we were seeing is that people were pouring into the streets, but government wasn't necessarily responding. And that was not just an anecdotal trend, but one that was documented through data. And so the question that really animated us to work on the book was this question of, okay, if we know that in general, there's this pattern where just because the public wants something to happen, it doesn't mean government's going to respond. Is there anything that we can learn from the outliers? Meaning that there are situations where there have been grassroots movements that have been able to translate the participation of their people into the kind of political influence they want. And so what if we were to study those outliers and then try to see if there are any patterns across them? And the null hypothesis in a way is that there are no patterns. And in fact, a lot of the organizers that we talked to said, you know what, you're going to do this study and there aren't going to be any patterns because what you're going to find is that there is a really gifted leader, let's say, who was really able to break through this trend that you're talking about. And that was possible that um, that would have been what we found. But instead, what we found was that all of these outlier cases, the ones that actually were able to be effective in translating the participation of their people into the influence they want, acted like what we call a prism. And the reason why we call it the prism is because if you think about what a prism is, it takes white light in and, and shoots a vector of colorful light out. And the movements and the organizations that we were studying, they did something similar with people's participation, which is that instead of taking people's participation in and just adding it up and, and shooting out an, another vector of white light or another vector of people's participation, they were taking people's participation and then transforming that participation into power based on the design choices they made at the heart of the prism, right? So the ability of a prism to refract light is not a function of how big it is or how much white light it takes in. It's a function of the design of the crystal that's at the heart of the prism. And that, that was a part of the metaphor that we felt like was relevant to um, what we were seeing in the movements that were these outlier cases. So it matters how an organization is constructed and its relationship with its constituency. Exactly. So it matters how the organization or movement, and we use those terms interchangeably in the book, um, designs the relationship between leaders and members, between the, the relationships that members have with each other, um, designs the way in which it makes decisions, like how it structures its decision-making processes internally. All of those things come together to shape the ability of the movement to have the kind of effect that it wants or not. I have also talked to some of the same leaders as you and others. What I hear a lot when I talk to someone uh, much less systematically than you is a real consciousness of that relationship and it kind of a bid to not claim too much credit almost ideologically now. Like we are people led. I'm incidentally here in the executive director role and sort of trying to underplay the role of leadership sometimes in a very deliberate way. And I both kind of admire that and think it's unusual and doubt it, whether it's as unimportant as they would like to profess, but I understand why they're doing it. Like, how do you think of that tension in the book? You even use that word, the tension between the, the leader and the constituency. 
So I, I completely understand the um, tension, and I do agree that all the organizations that we're studying are people-led organizations, meaning that they're they're ultimately grounded in their constituency. But the argument that we make is that it's their ability to exercise power in the public arena, whether it's in elections or policymaking or city council or whatever it is that they're they're working on, depends on the strength of the constituency of the people that they've organized, but then also the ability of the leaders to negotiate, to, to be strategic and to negotiate for power. And so it's that combination of having a set of leaders who are equipped to negotiate on behalf of the people that they have organized, but to do so in a way that is accountable to a group of people who are on the ground. Sometimes I think that we underestimate the importance of that kind of strategic leadership because of this effort to always put forward the needs of the people. And I think part of what we're trying to argue is that these leaders, by exercising leadership, it wasn't that they were speaking for somebody else or erasing the voice of the people that they were working with, but instead they were enabling this constituency to be able to realize its interests in the public domain, right? Because they were sitting at this table with other power players and negotiating for power in a way that, you know, that like that entails a constant back and forth that was really important. And I'll, I'll just sort of say one more thing on this, which is like a little bit tangential to your question, but I think is relevant, which is that one of the things we talk a lot about is this question of, what really differentiated these movements was not so much how good their strategic plan was at the beginning, but instead, how equipped were they to respond when their power was challenged? And to me, that's a really important distinction because lots of movements have great strategic plans at the beginning, right? But every single effort to make social change that I've ever seen in my life and in my career, right, has always gotten challenged at some point, right? The political world is very uncertain. We don't know what challenges are going to come our way. And so really what differentiates the most effective movements from the less effective ones is the question of how equipped are you to respond in that moment when you get challenged? And and part of why the strategic leaders became so important was because they're the ones that are negotiating for power in those moments when that challenge comes. But they're so much better equipped to be able to do so if they've organized the constituency in the ways that, that we talked about. And so it's kind of this question of when you're the leader sitting at the negotiating table, how many tools do you have in your toolbox? Right? How confident are you that you actually have a base of people that you can move into action if you need to exercise that tool or not? And I think those are the kind of questions that depend on the choices that you've made before about what are the kind of relationships I'm going to build with my people? What kind of relationships do they have with each other? How committed are they to each other, to me, to the issues that we're working on, and so on and so forth? Yeah. Let's take the example of Doran in with Isaiah in Minnesota, because I talked to her pretty recently, and just a very impressive, smart, charismatic sort of person, and a growing, influential organization, and some real real fights in a state and, and a huge amount at stake. And also like that very interesting combination of pragmatic and ideological that you put your finger on, I think. Talk about that particular group, why you pick them, what they are, what their fights are like, and how you see the stuff we're talking about manifest there. Yeah, so I agree. So I think Isaiah, it's a multi-issue, multi-faith um, grassroots organization um, in Minnesota that organizes across the entire state to try to build this multiracial constituency within the state. When we were first trying to identify organizations that were these quote-unquote outliers, we did all what, what we, we as academics call these like expert informant interviews, right? We reached, we reached out to a lot of different people who kind of have a bird's eye view on grassroots organizing in the United States and asked them, what are where are the places where you really see leaders and organizations that are breaking through this pattern, this broken link between participation and power? And there were a set of organizations that kept coming up again and again and again. We talked to philanthropists, to academics, to researchers, to other organizers, to leaders of national networks, all these different kind of people. And there are a set of organizations that kept coming up again and again and again. And Isaiah was one of them. So we thought, okay, we need to dig in and figure out what's going on here. So that's what brought us to Isaiah. And I'll just give you like a brief story that we tell in the book that I think is exemplary of, of what we're talking about, which is um, one of the campaigns that we were studying with them was a gubernatorial 
race. And Minnesota is a caucus primary state, which means that they have a caucus and sometimes the, depending on the results of the caucus, it could trigger um, a primary. Isaiah had initially, historically, it's, 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 you know, it's been around since I think the 1970s or so. And historically, they had been this faith-based community organizing group that hadn't done a lot of electoral work. They were doing a lot of local work in communities with congregations, but they really hadn't been doing a lot of electoral work. And what they had been realizing over the course of the 21st century is that it was great, all the work that they were doing in congregations and communities, but to really build power for the issues they cared about, they really had to get involved in elections. And so in the 2018 gubernatorial race, they said, okay, we're going to try to elect a lot of faith delegates to these caucuses, right? Because the way caucuses work is you elect these delegates who go, who go and then represent people across the state. They recruited a group of leaders from their congregations and communities that they had organized to go and essentially run as faith delegates. And what they told them is, you can support any candidate that you want. What we're just trying to do is get people of faith represented in this gubernatorial election, right? We want their voices in the caucus. So people went around and they um, got themselves elected as caucus delegates and 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 did all this work. And, um, and they were supporting a wide range of different candidates. Well, it turns out that the Isaiah caucus delegates had done so well that they essentially captured, I think it was 11% of all the delegates within the state, which meant that there was no candidate who could win without winning what, what became called the faith delegates. So then Isaiah had this choice, right? This is not necessarily a challenge to power, but it's an unexpected contingency that arose, right? Where they had this group of delegates who had the potential to be pivotal in the gubernatorial election, right? And they had told them, look, you can go and you can support anyone that you want. So among all these delegates, they had people supporting like four or five different candidates, right? Because it's a primary election, so there are a ton of candidates and there's all this stuff going on. And people had been donating money and like volunteering for hours every week. And so it wasn't just like, I kind of like this guy better than others. It was like people had really committed to different candidates. Isaiah realized that if they really wanted to influence the outcome, they had to try to hold the delegates together, right? They had to really try to sort of um, have a delegate sort of vote as a block. And so they went through this entire process where they essentially kind of posed this challenge to all the faith delegates, should we work together as a block or should we each be supporting our own candidate? And it turned out that they were able to get 100% of their delegates to decide to vote as a block, which meant that there were a bunch of faith delegates who had to give up their support for a candidate to whom they had already committed and instead decide to vote with this constituency. And that to us was this real sign of the ability of Isaiah to draw on the kind of commitment they had built among these delegates in such a way that they were able to have way more influence in the caucus than they would have otherwise. And then what ended up happening, right, is then you know, Isaiah held all these like candidate forums, like their their candidate did in fact win um, win the caucuses. And, and so they were able to kind of enter into this relationship with people in positions of political power that they had not been able to had they not built that constituency. So it was those two forces working in tandem that I think were, were really interesting. What's different about what Isaiah did there and what any other more conventional group that you've looked at, the Sierra Club or NARAL or any other piece of the progressive ecosystem in Minnesota or elsewhere would do or would bring to that kind of situation? Well, I, guess, I think one way to answer that is to think about how many organizations do you can you think of that when given a choice between committing to other people in an organization and committing to your first choice candidate, people would choose other people in the organization? And I think for a lot of the kind of activist political sector, people are really committed to particular candidates or policies or whatever the thing is that, that they're working for. And when asked to sort of say, hey, I want you to give up your support for this candidate that you've been donating money to and making calls on behalf of and all this kind of stuff, in order to stand with us, you know, most organizations don't have that kind of relationship with their constituency in order to to generate that. And to me, that's like a key part of the, the quote unquote prism that these organizations are building is because people are making a choice to stand with each other with the recognition that we can build something greater together than I can alone. That's a really unusual, I think, set of choices. It is. I, it, but I mean, just to play devil's advocate for a second, like imagine 
think back to like when move on was deciding to make an endorsement in the presidential primary. They went through this thing where they surveyed their members and maybe 65% came out for a particular candidates. So they made an endorsement and they threw the whole weight essentially of their organization behind the candidate without unanimity, but really kind of bulleting their votes and their resources that way. Different, right? But it's not unrelated. It's not unrelated. I mean, I think that's, um, so I think what you see in a lot of situations like that is that an organization, I mean, organizations like, yes, so there are lots of organizations, to your point, that will endorse candidates and that will often have some kind of internal small d democratic process within the organization to identify who has majority support. But then often what you see in those organizations is that people who lose break off. And I think that's what we didn't see in Isaiah is that the people who lost stuck with the organization nonetheless. Um, There's this great political economist um, from the 20th century named Albert Hirschman, who has a terrific book called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. And he talks about this phenomenon in, I think, a really interesting way. So he, the argument that he makes is that um, market organizations operate on the logic of exit, right? So if I don't like your product, I simply choose another. So if I don't like Cheerios, I go and buy checks, right? And whatever the other thing is. And um, political organizations are different because they have to operate not by a logic of exit, by a logic of voice, right? Which means that if I don't like your product, quote unquote, whether it's a candidate or a policy or whatever, then I should I should stay and fight and exercise my voice to try to move the organization to what I want. But in order for people to be willing to exercise that voice, they have to have loyalty. So the book is called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, right? They have to have commitment. I think what we see in a lot of organizations is that Often, when people try to exercise their voice and they lose, they don't have enough loyalty to stay with the organization, right? Like their commitment to an issue is greater than their commitment to standing with a group of people. What we saw in a lot of the organizations that we were studying is that the commitments that people had to each other within the organization, that sense of belonging, that community belonging was to them far more powerful than commitment to any one kind of issue or candidate or anything like that. And that's what it was the glue that held people together. I'm trying to think about this now from the standpoint of party versus organization, right? Like there have been times and places where party was very strong and people might have stayed with the party regardless of ideology or on a particular candidate or whatever. But there are also times, particularly right now, where people seem, I don't know even how to to characterize the dynamic, people people's relationship with party because it's so broad based and it has positions on so many things and so many adherents and and candidates that there's a much more tenuous relationship with party than there is with a group like this when it's well organized right mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think the person who whose work on this is so interesting is a colleague of mine at johns hopkins named daniel schlossman who wrote this great book about the relationship between movements and parties but one of the big trends that we've seen is that political parties since around the 1970s forward have really become more messaging machines and candidate you know, promotion machines as opposed to having any real tangible presence in, in people's lives. And I think that's one thing that was really different for, our, for these organizations is that they actually had a tangible presence in people's lives, that people had a concrete experience of other humans in the organization. One thing I should just say, though, I should clarify is I think sometimes people hear me talking about that and they sort of think like, oh, you're nostalgic for these like days when we didn't do digital organizing and everyone, everything was face to face. And I think there is a sense in which like all of these organizations were combining both digital and face to face work. So there's so none of the organizations that we studied were exclusively digital. I will say that. But they all engaged, used digital tools in order to engage other people. To me, it wasn't so much about the mode of interaction, like were we meeting face-to-face or were we meeting, were we corresponding via text or whatever else other medium that it might be, but it was much more about were we actually in authentic relationship with each other, you know? And it's less about the mode of communication and more about the depth of the relationships that existed. And you could have people in St. Paul could have deep relationships with people who are on the other side of the state and they weren't in face-to-face contact with. It was more about the kind of nature of the interactions that um, that existed. You studied four, maybe really six yep. groups in some detail. What would you say are the common denominators among them and what are the like crucial prismatic differences? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 
what we kind of talk about in the book is that um, all of these organizations built constituencies that had three characteristics. And the three characteristics are independent, committed, and flexible. So what do we mean by that? So first of all, they were committed in the ways that we're talking about. They were committed and the, the commitments were not just to the organization. They were horizontal commitments between people and each other. So like every person in the organization could name other humans in the organization that they were actually in relationship with. And one thing I think that was really important about that is that those were not just the relationships that they entered the organization with, right? That there was like new relationships that were evolving over time as a result of the work that they were doing in the organization. So, so that's commitment. The second thing is flexibility. What is the extent to which these organizations were building constituencies that were willing to kind of move with them through the ups and downs of any campaign? So like in the Isaiah example that we're talking about, obviously when they started the campaign, they had no idea that they were going to be asking their delegates six months later to reject the candidates that they had just sort of told them to go out and support. You have to have a certain set of commitments in place in order to be able to enable that kind of flexibility over time, but also have developed a certain kind of political consciousness. And one of the things that I always talk about is the difference between persuasion and consciousness that, you know, persuasion is about me trying to convince you that I'm right. Consciousness is about helping people to imagine a different world, to imagine a different kind of future, and then to ask, what must you believe because of that world that you're trying to create? You know, And so it's about kind of moving people to a different framework for understanding each other, their relationship to the political system, what they wanted for Minnesota, like all these different kinds of things. And so the flexibility kind of came from a variety of these, these different aspects. And then finally, independence. And what we mean by independence is what is the extent to which leaders were in relationship with their constituents in a way that they could independently mobilize them for action when necessary, right? And that's the question, I think, that when you're sitting at the negotiating table and someone's like, well, you know, I mean, I don't even know if this like really happened because one of these like apocryphal historical stories, but, you know, the story is always that when civil rights leaders were meeting with Lyndon Johnson, Basically, like they said, you know, we want you to, to pass the Voting Rights Act. And he was like, all right, make me, you know. And so when someone poses that challenge to you and says, make me, can you credibly say, great, I will do so. And if you depend, for example, on getting a million dollars from a donor to be able to call through your entire constituency list to, to mobilize them for action, they're not independent, right? Because you're only able to access them or move them to action if you have the sort of blessing of someone who's going to give you that money. And so independence really depended on that relationship of accountability between leaders and members. Yeah. Having talked to some of the funders of this, you wonder about how much it changes them if they get the big check and they're very excited or empowered, but also changed. Right. We didn't talk about this as much in the book, but I, I, I do think that one of the big challenges to a lot of organizing that we see right now in the you know, nonprofit sector is that so many of the leaders, of the organizations are incentivized to be more accountable to their funders than they are to their people. And it's a real challenge. Why have you stayed attracted to this universe? You're continuing to study it intensively over a long period of time. We were talking about how it fits in right at the onset of the interview about how it fits into the challenge to democracy right now. And I assume that's part of it. But like, what's, why does this have so much legs in your theoretical and <laughs> academic career? Yeah. So, I mean, a short answer is maybe I'm just really stubborn. <laughs> but to answer your question more seriously, I think, um, so to me, democracy is most fundamentally about self-governance, right? Democracy is, a, it's you know, government of, by, and for the people, right? It's about can people come together to govern ourselves? That's where both the power and the beauty of democracy come from, right? That's what makes it different from an autocracy or, or other forms of government. And so then the question is, well, what is self-governance, right? Well, self-governance most, in my mind, most fundamentally is this question of what is the extent to which people are able to be architects of their own future or not? And in a big society, like the ones that we live in now, in order for people to be architects of their own future, they have to be able to work with each other, right? And for us to be able to architect a future in which people of, of all backgrounds can come together and realize the vision of this multiracial democracy that we're trying to build, then 
people have to learn how you begin to work towards the common good, how you begin to, you know, build these societies and these structures together. And everything that we know from, you know, years of research across so many disciplines is that people are not born with the capacities for, you know, that kind of self-governance, right? That in fact, those capacities are taught. And that to me is where the kind of promise of these organizations and and this kind of collective action really comes from, because it's where people begin to learn the habits of self-governance, of collective action, of of all the things that that then begin to kind of fractal up to create the society that we want. And so part of what I worry about when I look around and see all the challenges of democracy that we face is that, like, yes, our institutions are broken. And like, yes, we need to um, fix them. But I think sometimes I worry that we have this assumption that like if we build it, they will come. And I think right now we're in a situation where we could reform our institutions, but people haven't had the lived experience of becoming putting their hands on the levers of change, of becoming, you know, understanding what it is to really be an architect of your own future. And I think without that experience, people aren't going to commit to any institutions that we build, no matter how well we build them. I mean, one of the biggest ironies for me right now is that some of the most active parts of our democracy are on the right. People who are organizing and using democratic tools to reshape school boards in their ideological image, reshape legislatures to potentially overturn elections in their direction, get really interested in secretary of state races, (laughs) which never used to be a big thing in order to maybe change or oversee elections in the way they want some of the innate democratic feelings are being harnessed in ways that are anti-democratic potentially. Completely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think a really important question that we need to be asking right now that I, um, I don't see often enough is what are the conditions under which civil society is a carrier of democracy versus a carrier of authoritarianism? And, you know, if you look at data, for example, on civil society in um, the Weimar Republic, <laughs> right, which is responsible for the rise of Nazism, it was, it was very thick. You know, they had a very thick civil society, right? And so we know from history that social capital alone, right, is not a guarantee of democracy. And I think sometimes we assume, like, if only we can get more people into action with each other, then, then good things will emerge. But to your point... No, because sometimes you put people into action with each other and they're actually working for very anti-democratic ends, small d democratic ends. And um, so, you know, for us, like, like that's why part of what I found really interesting in some of the things that we found in PRISMS was this idea that, you know, a lot of what these organizations were doing was they were rejecting conventional boxes that we see um, in politics. So we talked a little bit before about they were rejecting the idea that you can either be really ideologic or really pragmatic, right? They had to be both simultaneously. They were rejecting the idea that you had to either work inside the system or outside the system, right? Again, they were like constantly working, doing both. And then they were also rejecting the idea that we can only invest in people's key social identities or we can build ties across those identities, you know? And so I think one of the big challenges that a lot of movements are facing right now in the context of the multiracial world that we're living in is what does it mean to kind of recognize historic patterns of disempowerment and marginalization in communities of color and in intersectionally marginalized communities and all different kinds of, of communities and recognize the need to build bonding ties between people who have that shared sense of experience of oppression, but at the same time, build ties across these different kinds of groups. And again, these organizations were both creating spaces where people could bond with other people who are like them, but also bridge across um, across these group identities to um, engage with people who are different from them and engage in dialogue and debate across difference. And so it's the need to do both and to give people the kind of the micro experience of what it looks like to do that in your own life so that people can then begin to imagine what it might look like if we were able to do that in our in our actual politics at the state and national level. I mean, the way you talk about this uses kind of a deep stack of academic terminology <laughs> that, that I think is shared by a lot of the leaders that you interview and work with, but not necessarily by their flocks. Okay. I mean, right. I mean, like yeah, you yeah. hear Carville talking about like we need to speak a, a language different than historically marginalized 
the mumbo jumbo as he sees it as a man of the people. How do you think about like, what is the audience for your book? How we ought to communicate the kind of ideals of these organizations in a language that fits regular people. Yeah, that's um, so it's a very fair um, critique and I appreciate it. And it also makes me laugh. It's, um, not, it's not meant to be a critique, just you know, an observation and a, yeah, and a yeah, conundrum. Really, really yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's so a couple thoughts on that. The, the first is that sometimes I worry, you know, like in that debate between like James Carville and the whatever you want to call it, the progressive left or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, I worry that we we focus so much on language and words and communication and ignore the power of lived experience to shape people's reactions to things like the Democratic Party. You know, so if the Democratic Party is, in fact, nothing but a set of slogans that I see in my email inbox or on a billboard or on a, on a television commercial, then, yes, those words absolutely do matter. But I think there's also a lot of research that we have that um, – lived experience is far more powerful than any kind of frame, messaging frame that you're going to put on it. And so the question is, you know, is the supply of opportunities that people have to engage in their communities equitable across all the different kinds of communities that we want to reach out to? And I think the answer right now is no, <laughs> you know, so that's why a lot of these ideas are so abstract. And that's why we end up in all these debates about language and messaging, because we aren't engaging people in actual experiences that are going to overcome any of the debates they might hear about, like, am I a marginalized community? Am I not? Is that the right way to refer to to, to all these different things or not? So it does extend to more than just language. It does extend to policy and positioning, like, where are we going to be as a party on social issues when some of the constituencies might be to the right of the activists or in a different place. It's a super complicated multidimensional game out there to get people all lined up on one side. Yeah, I agree with that too. Here's what I would say. I think sometimes we assume that people's um, preferences for what they want on policy and different kinds of things like that are sort of determined by their position or the policy's position on some, you know, left-right spectrum. Is it too left? Is it too central? Is it, you know, whatever, like these, these Another academic construct, really. Another, well, but, but we sort of assume that, right? It's like, is, yeah. the, is the woke left, is the AOC squad of the Democratic Party, you know, or the kind of centrist middle going to take over? Like they had that same kind of framework. And, um, and really, I feel like, you know, when you, when I, when I talk to people who are part, you know, ordinary people who are like in these organizations, it's like, they're not thinking about some kind of like ideological left-right spectrum and where the position falls on it. They want to know, like, how is this going to affect my life, right? What is the experience that I'm going to have in my community, of whether or not I can feed my family, whether or not my children are going to realize the opportunities that, that I want them to realize and, you know, really concrete things like that. And there's a translational aspect between like what the policy is and how people sort of think they might experience it that I think we're depending too much on communications to sort of do that work. But then the other question that I have a lot of times is one of the things that's really um, unique about democracy as a form of government is democracy asks people to accept uncertainty over outcomes in order to have certainty over process. Right. And that's the opposite of authoritarianism. Right. When Putin calls an election, we know what the outcome is going to be. He's going to win. Right. There's a certain outcome, but there's a very uncertain process on the way there. Right? We don't know how many civil liberties are going to be suppressed in order to, to get to that outcome. However many are necessary. However many are necessary. Right. And democracy in theory should be the reverse. Right. Where we have a certain set of protections around the process. And then but you don't know your side who win or your side who lose. Right. So I think a big question we should ask ourselves is, okay, what are the conditions under which people are willing to accept uncertainty over outcomes? Well, when the bounds around that uncertainty are too broad, when I may not be able to feed my family, when my kids may have a worse life than what I have experienced, right? Whether I see that as left or right or whatever I see that, then I, yes, like I am much less willing to sort of accept the uncertainty. This is like a way of saying that like, I think we should engage more in conversations about like what is the extent to which people feel like they have the power to determine how uncertain that set of outcomes is going to be. Because I think when people feel like they have the experience of having some power over that set of outcomes they're being willing to they're be, they're being asked to accept, then they're much more willing to kind of accept all the sort of you know 
demands of democracy and the democratic process and and so on. But instead, we're having this conversation about like, are we too far left or too, too far right or, or something like that, which feels like a distraction. Do you think we on the left should accept the result of a democratic election in which Trump comes back and wins fair and square, which could well happen. In other words, at least fair and square in the sense that he gets more votes, both in the electoral college and proceeds to do undemocratic things. Like how do we, how do we think about democracy when the big power game could actually be a backsliding one? Like people actually elect an undemocratic leader in a democratic state. Right. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, so to me, this kind of gets into like a big set of questions about what do we think democracy is, right? Is it just the elections and, and so on, right? And, and in theory, like democracy, like, you know, built into our system are all these checks and balances. And part of, I think, what's really worrisome about some of the, the anti-democratic kind of authoritarian patterns that we're seeing is that a lot of those checks and balances are being systematic are, are, or or there are forces on the right that are trying to erode all those checks and balances, right? And that includes everything from an independent media to an independent judiciary to election officials, you know, and all these different kind of things. So that can we be in a position where you have someone like Trump who is small d democratically elected? I think the question is, what, you know, what does that mean in the context of a system where all the checks and balances have actually really been eroded? Like, what does democratic election mean in that context? To your point, I, I mean, part of what's underlying, I think, this question is that you know, the argument that I'm making about the importance of like civil society and grassroots organizing and shaping people's like commitments to democracy and their understandings and experiences of it doesn't mean that the institutions are unimportant, right? It's a both and. But I do think that sometimes we have the conversation just about the institutions and, and then this other stuff kind of feels so small and kind of cute, you know, but not as important as, as some of the big questions. So how does your institute that you're running, SNF Agora, or if that's how you pronounce it, um, how does that fit into this? We started out talking about that and you said you wanted to come back to it and I want to talk about it. Like, how do you, in your in your role, try to affect things on this big fight that we're having? Yeah. Um, I mean, so it's a, so I'll say, you know, we're only a couple years old and so we're still figuring it out. And I think it's a really good question. But one of, um, you know, one of the things that I always sort of say is that, you know, underlie the kind of creation of the SNF Agorans too was, was this hypothesis, quote unquote, that universities actually matter in solving this problem. And so the question is, how do universities matter as well? I do believe that, you know, figuring out some of the big questions um, that my colleagues and I are working on, like, for example, how do we construct vehicles through which people begin to have an experience of their own power? How do we understand the roots of radical partisanship in America? How do historical legacies of racism affect what's possible in our politics today? Like, these are all questions that, you know, are kind of big picture questions that my colleagues are studying, but that they actually do really matter in helping us answer some of the questions. Now, I think the challenge, and this is the one that we're, I think, doing lots of different pilot work right now, is how do you translate the ideas from academic research and turn them into usable knowledge for people on the ground? And likewise, how does knowledge that exists in these communities feed back into and shape academic research? And so we think about organizing our work around three functions, and we call them discovery, design, and dialogue. So discovery is just regular research. Dialogue is like all the work that you do to put your ideas out in the world, events and convenings and so on. Um, but then design is what we're talking about now, essentially, which is that translational space where knowledge from communities flows into the academy and knowledge from the academy kind of turns into usable knowledge and actionable work knowledge for practitioners on the ground. And so the question is, what are the mechanisms through which that happens? And the last thing I'll say is that I think a lot of times when we think about translational knowledge, people want there to be a product that comes out on the other end, right? Like a vaccine or a pill or or some technology or something like that. And I think we're working in problems where there are no formulaic answers, right? There's no formula for building a social movement. And there's no formula for reducing partisanship or, or reducing extreme partisanship or something like that. And so the question is, how do you design the strategic and relational experiences that people need to be able to change their practice? And I think that's like a, a question that we're still grappling with. And what is the role of universities in doing that? Yeah. If we are in a really dangerous moment in our democracy, and I fully believe we are, and you and your colleagues, not just at that institute, but across lots of different academic organizations are really working on that. 
who else do you do you look to? Who do you think is really doing good work that people who are practitioners or activists or otherwise engaged citizens ought to like be aware of and go to to read or kind of try to understand this world that you're studying? Like other scholars, you other mean? scholars, other institutes, other like what's going on, like just in a nutshell, what's going on in the pro-democracy yeah. studying academic work right now? I, yeah. I, I know there's a ton. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there, the question, it feels hard to answer only because there's so many people that I think are doing really interesting work. And so a couple things that I'll just say is that I think sometimes people think about, is academic work useful? <laughs> you know, and they think about that sort of talent as being one of like short-term versus long-term, right? Because we're we're playing the long game, right? Like we're thinking about the kind of long, the the, the big questions and and the, the, the we're in this like very urgent moment right now. And so to me, the best kind of scholarship out there are people that are thinking about how do we understand questions in a way that enable us to act in ways right now that are both fast and deep, right? Like we have to work fast, but that, that, but fast work that is shallow is not going to solve our problems. And so it's almost like that long-term, short-term frame is, I think, misguided. It's really the difference between doing shallow work and deep work. And I think that's why ideas matter, because ideas shape our ability to kind of think about what are the deep changes that, that we need to make. So then the question is, okay, so then who's doing, um, who's doing really interesting work? There are so many people that are doing that. And I'll maybe one way to answer this is um, there's a great article that was published in the Chronicle of Higher Education a couple of years ago called Can Universities Save the World? And the point that they were making is that um, so many universities, um, you know, for a long time kind of had this image of the ivory tower, right? And that, and that was, in fact, how universities were supposed to work, that you were supposed to have scholars who were removed from all the biases that can come from being engaged in the real world. And so it is that remove that makes the academy um, so useful. And what we saw is what we've seen throughout history is that in moments where the world is in what feels like a moment of crisis, then universities have stepped away from that ivory tower frame to try to think about how they can engage more productively with the world. And so it happened after World War II, right? And it's happening again right now. And so you see the creation of a lot of institutes like the SNF Agora Institute at lots of universities across the country. So you have Columbia World Projects at Columbia, you have Social Change X at um, MIT, you have, I can't remember the name of it, but, you know, similar initiatives at Stanford, like lots of these universities are creating institutes that are explicitly dedicated to trying to think about how you do that translational work to, um, to solve it. So, you know, that would be like one place that that I, I would go to. In terms of like the work on organizing in particular, an analogy that I use sometimes with my students is the idea that, you know, if you imagine kind of like a cone of knowledge creation, you know, let's say, and at the bottom is like really actionable, like tactical stuff that can easily translate into actionable work by a practitioner. So it's like, if you use this message, you are more likely to turn voters out for an election or something like that. Like that kind of work is useful and it's most immediately actionable in a way. But I think there's a lot of work that's further up the cone that is also really useful, but sometimes it's harder to kind of see what the immediate connections are. And I think that if I were to try to reach out to think about what would I wish more organizers would read, I think it's some of that work I think that's further up the cone that might help shape people's ideas on things like what does a multiracial democracy actually look like? You know, what do we know about how philanthropy has distorted the incentives for grassroots organizations? Megan Ming Francis is a scholar who's doing like amazing work on that, you know, at the university of Washington. What does history teach us about um, what kind of policy designs are most effective in shaping grassroots action over time? I think there are a lot of people that are studying some of these bigger questions that feel less removed, but in fact can help answer some of the, the deep challenges that we face right now. What are you working on now? So um, the biggest project I have, in, I mean, in addition to like trying to set up the Agora Institute, <laughs> is I'm working on a book that is looking at... Um, people that are organizing for racial justice within the context of evangelical megachurches. And so you know, a megachurch is defined as um, a church that is 2,000 people or more. The biggest 7% of churches in America constitute 50% of the church-going population. So church attendance is heavily skewed towards these big churches. The biggest megachurch in America is an 80,000-person church in Oklahoma. 
all the news um, that you see on evangelicals is obviously that they, you know, eight out of 10 of them, nine out of 10 of them voted for Trump, that there has been this sort of real turn towards Trumpism. But there's actually, I think, um, if you look at the people who may or may not identify as evangelical on a poll, but actually attend a lot of these megachurches in communities at large, there's inevitable heterogeneity. And there's um, groups of people that have been really thinking about what does it mean to fight for racial justice within the context of this relatively conservative institution. Anyways, so I'm working on a book about it, and I'm endlessly fascinated by um, the people that I've learned from who are doing that work. What's the very short summary of what do you find, or what are you finding? (laughs) So I guess, so it's still in progress, so I don't know that I have my um, 30-second answer to that question yet, but here's what I'll say. The work is not easy. It's really hard. And I think people have to face constant choices. I mean, getting back to what we were talking about before, they have to face a constant choice between um, exit voice and loyalty, right? What are the conditions under which my faith commitments, you know, prompt me to stay and fight for my church? And what are the conditions under which it's just too much and I have to leave, you know? And I think that question is a real struggle for a lot of people who are doing this work. But then there's also this other question of um, how do you build institutions that are able, how do you really change an institution from within? And I think that's what um, a lot of these these people are doing. And I think the answer in the end is that the evangelical church is not going to change unless the people demand it. And so the question is, are there enough people of faith out there who are willing to make demands that, you know, if you really listen to what the Bible is saying, you know, that, that where they feel like it's consistent with the theology and the world that they want to create. And I think that question is still um, an open one. Well, it sounds interesting. It also sounds like a big uphill battle, but I don't know too much about those churches. So. They're really interesting organizing, um, you know, uh, things because, I mean, here's like another stat that I'll give you is that, you know, the average megachurch in America, I think, has five million people somewhere in that range and an, an annual budget of six million, six point five million dollars. Ninety six percent of their budget comes from individual donations. Oh. So they have a scale of commitment that's really different from a lot of other organizations that we see that are philanthropically funded in the ways that we talked about. Is there a question I failed to ask you that I should have? Not that I can think of right now, but it's been a real pleasure to have this conversation. So thank you for inviting me into it. It's always good to hear what you're up to, and I appreciate you taking the time. Anything else you want to say? Nope. That was Hari Han. Hari is at snfagora.jhu.edu. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.